0: This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership
1: with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.
0: Before the coronavirus pandemic, unemployment was the biggest challenge South Africa faced. COVID-19 has made that crisis much worse, destroying economic value, diverting essential investment funds and crushing further the spirit of our country's poor We face a huge task trying to rebuild South Africa's economy. But while the challenges are many and massive, there is also an opportunity to shape the future of work in years to come in productive and positive ways. Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the World After the Pandemic. It's brought to you by Kaya FM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. I'm John Perlman. In our sixth episode, Will Corona and its consequences kill off some jobs for good? Which sectors of our economy offer the best prospects for renewal and sustainable work? And is this just a matter of economics or do we need a change in attitude and values as well? Let's welcome our guests. Professor Miriam Altman is a professor at the University of Johannesburg School of Economics and sits on the National Planning Commission. Professor Altman, welcome to you.
1: Thanks for having me. We also welcome
0: Stafford Macy, who is the GM for Africa of the company we work. He sits on the board of the CSIR and Advitech as well. Stafford, good to have you. Thanks for having me. Let's set the scene. For South Africa's unemployed, a desperate situation has become much worse. The economic situation is not good anymore because of this disease. Who would have known that things
2: would be this bad? Now we must go back to the
1: towing port. There
0: are no jobs altogether, especially
2: now during the lockdown. One of my next door neighbors also just lost their job.
0: The situation is very bad everything is down life is tough especially for us black people that's what joblessness sounds like professor altman do we have to accept that some of the jobs that are now gone are gone for good
1: i think that's right i think unfortunately what's happened is that corona zeros into services oriented jobs which is where most youth and women actually find jobs. Firms are going to find ways of working with fewer people, and we're going to have to find newer activities and and probably uh, incentivize work with labor subsidies.
0: So which sectors do you think show the best prospects of offering new work if there is to be some?
1: Well, you know, uh, the the first thing is uh, that the National Development Plan, of which I was part, advocates, firstly, that we need to be doing things like densifying cities and and putting housing in the center of cities and getting more functional urban areas that enable people to connect. The reason that matters for employment is that one thing leads to another. So when you're starting to look at new activities, uh, be they related to digital or, uh, you know, or any other kind of services, which is where most jobs are, people have to be connecting. They have to be communicating. The cost of getting around needs to be low. Um, they have to be living near where opportunity is. I mean, if you think about WeWork, uh, uh, and I know you're going to come to Stafford, uh, you know, the whole issue is bringing people together to, uh, to, so that they can share ideas. And, and jobs comes from that. It doesn't, it doesn't come from big factories anymore. It comes from people connecting. Stafford
0: Macy, the the International Labour Organization, estimates that in high-income countries, 27% of workers could work remotely from home. I would assume that for South Africa, that figure would be substantially lower. Am I making the wrong assumption, though?
2: No, I don't. You know, this notion of work from home, we almost need to take a step back. I think that people moving into lockdown... Um, the leaders of businesses have understood now that the myth of their businesses requiring a certain proximity has been dissipated. So, you know, actually running an operation, an insurance company, a bank, um, uh, whatever that may be, um, especially these kind of blue collar workers, if you take a look at that, that is capable of being done at home. So the organization, the organizational structures that we used to before has been completely destroyed. I mean people are putting in information technology architecture that allows for remote work. These investments are not gonna go away after lockdown or once we have a vaccine. People are also comfortable working at home for the most part. But you know, interesting study across the G eight, you know, sixty odd percent on average of people in the G eight, just before the lockdown started happening, had never worked from home ever before. So they either didn't have the equipment or they just physically didn't, they weren't able to do it. And now suddenly they are doing it from home. So organizations are now starting to realize, wait a minute, this is possible and we can work this way. But we're actually seeing a pendulum shift towards the middle. Not people wanting to leave home because of screaming kids and Lots of noise or they just don't have the facilities that they need at home or the business is struggling with a diverse workforce. And when that diversity, this is where diversity is not a good thing because everyone has their own ISP. Um, everyone's connecting in a different environment. Not everyone has utilities, etc. So it becomes quite an arcane environment to support. Now, we see the pendulum not shifting from that all the way back to I want to go back to the office. People are looking for something in the middle, something that gives them the ability to work from home if they wish to do so go into the corporate headquarters, um, do what they need to do there for a particular period of time in a socially distant way. And then generally speaking, having access to a place where they can go where they can be hyper productive, in a hyper hygienic environment with good t- connectivity and all the amenities and um, a company like we work and, and that's where co-locating and co-working spaces are starting to emerge. They suddenly become solutions for where we, where we think the majority of the folks will settle. And that is, You know, if I want to work from home, I'll work from home. If I want to go to the headquarters, I will. But then I want, you know, the majority are saying I want a place where I can go no matter where I am that has all the amenities of an office with all the productivity levers uh, and I can be productive there.
0: Miriam Altman, the sectors that might create more work are these sectors that lend themselves easily to people working remotely or will the bulk of new jobs come from industries that require people to actually go there?
1: Yeah, you know, I've got a couple of responses to, to Stafford's point, and I know you want me to comment on sectors, but the vast majority of people in this country don't have a home that is amenable to homework. They don't have home offices. They do have kids running around. They do live in dense environments. Uh, they don't necessarily, you know, only 50% of the of the population has access to the Internet in any shape or form, not and very often not in the home. Uh, You know, there'd be a lot of setting up, but also you've just got to realize that the home environment, even for middle class uh, workers, is not particularly conducive. Uh, So so we just have to be a little bit realistic. The second thing is that most jobs in the world are created in services. And those are services like restaurants, hospitality, um, tourism, uh, you know, all the sectors that are being targeted and are going to be very slow to open. What we need to do is we it's incumbent on us to find strategies that enable um, us to get back to work and to help shape workplaces like we're starting to see in the schools, innovative strategies that enable the physical distancing uh, that we need. But the, the reality is that most of the jobs in the world currently are created in face to face kinds of services, which means you have to be, you know, there. I'm not saying all But the vast majority of jobs that are created around the world, particularly in middle-income and higher-income countries, uh, that's where they come from. Now, there's other opportunities around um, sectors like agriculture is an obvious one, and agricultural exports. And, of course, there you absolutely must be mostly, you know, at work. Uh, There's another issue, which is that there's a, a, a value of being at work. There's teamwork. There's you know, management of, of big teams, not everything is individualized work. Yes. Where where that homework works is it particularly is where you're talking about small startups, uh, individualized work digital work, you know, really purely digital work. But even then, um, you know, there's a reason why if you're doing, say, iTutor, as an example, you know, we, South Africa has the, you know, the biggest online education service is, it was based in Hong Kong. It it now gets serviced out of South Africa. It's called iTutor, which teaches um, English to Chinese. And, you know, you've got training, you've got quality control, you've got to be watching what's going on. It, 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 I guess you could do it remotely, but it's not something that you know. There are people involved who need a certain discipline and a place to go.
2: So, so can I just can I just quickly just comment yes. and, and tag on what Miriam said there? I think what's interesting is the observation relative to what the jobs look like today. You know, what I am noticing is there's a there's a new set of work emerging. So, as industries are redefining themselves, businesses are establishing new services, and those new services don't really have. Uh, you know, formal, defined categories of work, job titles, uh, you know, KPIs associated with them, but it is work that needs to be done. So I see a lot of organizations almost having, for lack of a better term, their AWS moment, kind of like when Amazon was selling books and then it realized that shared infrastructure was a potential for them to open up and they created Amazon's AWS, which is one of the largest cloud businesses today. What I'm seeing businesses doing out there is taking a look at this remote infrastructure that they're putting in, which is enabling a workforce to access services inside the business, you know, without proximity being an issue. And that same architecture is being reimagined. And they're asking if, if our staff can do this, why can't, you know, third parties do this? Why can't other businesses do this? And from that reimagination, is a whole new set of services are emerging and a no, a, a whole new work class and categories are being invented right now as we speak, more rapid than I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. And that's because leaders are thinking about doing things with their businesses that were unheard of before. And because of this infrastructure investment, they're capable of now executing against that. And, and that I feel is quite exciting. And I, and I do feel that's gonna create a new category of services, offerings, capabilities, etc., moving forward and a workforce that will have to support that and, and kind of underlie Um, that entire substrate. So I think we need to take a look at jobs and and what we previously defined them as. But I think we also need to be cognizant of this new invention and reimagination happening and almost new industries spawning and new services associated with them spawning. And it's happening in parallel.
0: So Miriam Altman, I mean, young people either coming out of university or coming out of school in this post-corona period, as we try and build something out of the rubble, where do they find work?
1: Well, it's going to be really rough. Uh, we already lost. We have 300,000 fewer young people working that, uh, than we did a decade ago. So it's going to be really rough. We already had a stagnant economy. So, we've, you know, we've got to see it in that in that way that it's going to be very, very hard for young people now, because, as I said, most jobs are in are in face to face services. The, um, the you know, to Stafford's point, though, there's going to be I, I think the digitization of uh, of uh, business activity is going to happen much faster now. And um, and so what that means, you know, at a minimum, is that our population needs to be e-enabled, and they, and the kids need to be become e-savvy. And when I say that, you know, I work with uh, youth leaders in uh, in in the country, but the, say in Ecorlenny, which is a metropolitan area, and the kids don't have money. They do, and these are like top uh, youth leaders, but they don't they never have money for data. Even the kids who are going into math and stats and these kinds of areas don't really understand the data world. So they're not e-savvy, if you see what I mean. They may be online and doing Facebook and stuff like that. So getting kids completely, their heads, like they did in China and Vietnam, completely getting their heads wrapped into this digital world is, is I can tell you 100% for sure, that's the one thing I can tell you 100% for sure, is going to be essential to our future. And then when you say what the, what the activities of the future are, maybe what I'm saying sounds a bit abstract, but with digitization, there's no doubt there's going to be new kinds of activities, but our population's not going to be ready for them. We don't know what they're going to be exactly, but we, I can tell you right now that the majority of the population's not going to be ready and we need to do something about it. And is it possible? Of course. Vietnam, a low income economy, yes. uh, is way ahead of us on this. Of course. It's absolutely possible. It's a choice. And we yeah, treat I mean, it like I, a luxury, and it's an essential. Uh, uh,
2: uh. I think back, just quickly, I'm going to jump in on what Miriam's saying there. I love what she's saying. I, I think back <laughs> on, the, on the emergence of the high school movement. I don't know. No, no, I, I was speaking to Professor Jonathan Janssen the other day, and uh, uh, he was, I actually asked him, uh, Prof, do you know when the high school movement actually came into instantiation? The high school movement, as we know it, the Western high school movement. And uh, he looked at me quizzically, and I actually told him, in the year 1909, a bunch of farmers in downtown Iowa Circle their wagons, metaphorically speaking, and they decided to take their children out of the fields because you know, 98% of the human population were in agriculture at that point in time. They decided the government wasn't doing anything about it. Their kids were suffering. Um, labor and work was something that was, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was difficult and it was hard physically. And they decided this was enough. And what they did was they circled their wagons, they taxed themselves, and they created an institution called the high school. And within 15 years from that movement on the ground, 70 plus percent of the addressable age group um, in the United States were going to high school. In that age demographic
0: so and i so think what, in principle so what's, we what's should be the, doing the same what what's mm-hmm. the what's the equivalent here i mean that okay
2: the equivalent is here's what i'm trying to posit the posit is you know we can have national development plans we can have government and what we do as South africans we always look up when we have a problem versus looking down i think what we need to do is circle we need to get together because clearly there's a vacuum of leadership here and the the fact that the leaders that we have in the country are just not there yet if you talk about digital illiteracy you know, you can take a look at the broad populace that we have. But if you take a look at leadership within our government framework, it is, it is acute. So we're not going to have the problem solved over there. It never gets solved over there. It's going to be solved with us on the ground. It's individuals getting together, reimagining and building services, products, companies, etc. that leverage this latent human capital. Because when Mariam says X amount of people are out there... And, you know, they struggle. I see that as, and again, just because I always see the glass full, I see that as a massive opportunity. I see that as so much latent human potential. And if we can augment that latent human potential with digital tools, we can create services that were unimaginable at the time. Because in 1909, yeah. when they circled the wagons, they, they thought a job was plowing the field. What they couldn't see is it wasn't about chasing calories in a field. It was designing uh, a Michelin chef hors d'oeuvre. You know, they just couldn't imagine a job like that back then. But that comes from reskilling. That comes from a grounds up movement. And I think as society, not governmentally, as society, we need to take a look at this. When the neighborhood that you live in, the the forums where you participate, I think this is where the circling of the wagons need to happen and where we need to reskill our kids and, in, and ingest new capabilities into them.
0: So, Miriam Altman, I mean, the, the Brave New World sounds fabulous, but it doesn't sound like it's coming anytime soon. And I'm just wondering what do people do in the winter of 2021 uh, for people who are shelf packers, who are supermarket cashiers who are security guards who are nurses who are all these people who've been defined as essential when they find that not only has their situation not changed, but the prospects of their teenage children at the very least being able to follow them into that world appear bleaker than ever.
1: Yeah. Well, John, I think it's a really fair question. And I worry about a brave new world language right now Um, as much as I'd love. And it's much more fun to engage with it. The reality is that life was harsh already and it's gonna be a very hard year if not a few years. so let's let, let's let's recognize that for most people this is not a brave world right now and um, and so firstly as you know the state stepped in with a series of, of social grants anyway which you know it's it's not a it's not something you can do forever. Um, There are strategies to keep kids in school and that may actually, strangely, you know, in a period of very high unemployment, it's not a strange thing to do. We just don't talk about it in this country. But making sure that the post school education training and uh, training system uh, works better with better private sector partnerships and so on would be something one could do over the next few years. And you and you keep kids out of the labor market, actually uh, building up those skills. In the meantime, you know, what I've been advocating is we need to pump up dramatically the support to companies to get back to work. So, you know, I think there's a bit of a kind of um, self-regulation idea, which just isn't going to work. The Department of Labor has an inspectorate of about 500 people um, for 1.8 million companies. And, um, uh, you, you know, what we need is a dramatically pumped up, uh, support to companies uh and 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 when I say inspector I mean support to companies and of course uh enforcement uh that right there i suppose is a job creator yes. but the the best possible thing is to get people back to work and to get people back to work sustainably without locking down again that is going to be a number 1 Type of activity. The second type of thing that has to happen is we have to get stronger engagement with communities around information systems, early warning systems, uh, approaches to quarantining. Uh, We just don't have them yet, and the the reality is that both of those things that I've just said are fantastic investments for the future.
0: Stafford Macy, if we were to go back to something I said in the introduction, that this isn't just a question of economics, but it's a question of values as well. Would we as a society be entitled to ask of corporations that they actually make not just job creation, but the sustaining of jobs part of their payback for the support they would have got from government during this time? That in fact, even though they found that they can get by with fewer people, they're obliged to not get by with fewer people, but obliged to keep people in jobs uh, as much as they possibly can.
2: I think there's there's definitely a challenge to capitalism and generic, uh, not generic, but traditional economic systems. I think our economic engine in the world, from a pure capitalistic perspective, is driven by a fitness function that Milton Friedman gave it. You know, in the early 70s, Milton Friedman got up and said the sole responsibility of a corporation is to derive value for its shareholders. And he essentially programmed the market for that. And when a pandemic hits, and when we have we're in this accelerated thought pattern, I think what we are forced to do, and I think your question you know alludes to that we have to reimagine our economies. we need to reimagine our fitness functions um, and this is probably the most important thing that needs to happen at a macro scale right now. The traditional way businesses have been measured, the outputs, the way a CEO is measured on measured on operating margins. Um, needs to change. We need to reimagine because what businesses are going to do now because of the technological tools that they have, these tools are superpowers. You know, artificial intelligence yes. is a mass automator. It is a superpower. But the, the problem with the superpower, it's kryptonite, is inequality. Because if we, can, if we inject the superpower into Milton Friedman's fitness function we will have a dystopian outcome we will have businesses doing more with less and that's my worry today my worry globally speaking when i when i when i speak to ceos today uh, you know i'm encouraging them not to go down the old fitness function route which is saying hey wait a minute if my workforce can do this i can employ these technological tools and i don't need so many of them moving forward so i'm gonna do what i did previously with less people so what we have a danger of and this could be a perfect storm is is this fitness function combined with these technological tools, a pandemic that accelerates our thinking and investment in these tools. And suddenly we've got leaders sitting back saying, wait a minute, I can dramatically increase my operating margin. Therefore, I'm going to lay off half the force because I didn't need them before, because I can get this on an outsourced basis relative to what I'm doing. So that's a very scary outcome. And I think what we need to do is have leaders have... Imaginations of how they can do what they did, not in an automated fashion, but do what was previously unimaginable to increase their portfolio of services to do things that their businesses weren't traditionally built to do. And now they're capable of doing it. And it's not about laying people off. It's about human machine symbiosis is a beautiful thing today. And it could instantiate a lot more work because the only time we're going to run out of jobs is when we run out of problems. And we have a lot of problems. And I think if if leaders can take their mindset and kind of reboot it and realize that they can do uh, what the fitness function that's programmed them to do um, exponentially, but it doesn't need to be so. I love what Tom O'Reilly says. He says, if we do live in a world where you know, we've been mitigated or disintermediated as a, as a human resource. It won't be because of artificial intelligence. It will actually be because of a lack of imagination on behalf of leadership. So then that's what's so important yes. today. We need to circle and we need to speak as leaders and, and not doing more with less, but doing what was previously impossible. And I think just a linear definition that says you cannot lay people off. I don't think, I don't think that's sustainable. I think the more sustainable aspect and, and approach is to say, can you do what was previously impossible? When we gave ATM to banking, the banks didn't lay off all the tellers. That was the prediction, but that tool led to the tellers being moved away from shoving paper through thick glass panes, and they were put behind computers with keyboards and mouse and a screen and connected to information, and that led to a whole new bunch of work and portfolio of services in the financial services industry. We need that thinking now, More so than we've ever needed it before, because we've got all these tools that could just have a complete dystopian outcome.
0: So Miriam Altman, if if business is going to do what business does, what should government be doing? Is there an opportunity in this crisis for the South African government to make policy decisions around the economy that would be more pro-jobs?
1: No, absolutely, and that's why I was referring back to the national development plan, which focuses on that. You know, you can you can hammer away at what companies need to do, and 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 I I, I would agree with what Stafford has said, but government's got to create a conducive environment, yes. and that ranges Indeed. from making sure that you have um, uh, densified, uh, you know, people living in the middle of cities rather than in mega projects outside of cities, effective commuter transport. Um, you know, energy that is affordable and sustainable, uh, an education and training system that services what industry needs. Uh, you can't get away from these things, uh, these essential things. There is no brave world and new industries without these fundamental um, things. What we're trying to do in the Planning Commission, uh, and we're putting out a whole bunch of papers right now about this, is is to help direct where civil society may want and government, of course, but civil society could be directing its voice and, and where its demands maybe should be focused. Um, you know, when you when you say which, which which industries could be creating jobs right now, well, construction's an example. And we've just put out a, a view on how to strengthen procurement and management of infrastructure projects so that more of that happens. Um, these are the mundane, I'm afraid, very mundane things. But without them, uh, it, it, you don't end up with uh, economic dynamism. It's absolutely essential.
2: But, I, you know, can I just add something on to what Miriam's saying there? I think there are some clear things that government should do. And this is where politics and philo- philosophical polit- political views do get in the way. You know, the fact that we are going to bail an airline out again the fact that what we're doing with state-owned enterprises and the corruption and everything there, I think, I think South Africa has all the tool sets, all the assets to reimagine and present leadership in government and execute against the National Development Plan and these amazing programs if we just get our act together. Because the, the problem that we have in this country is not that we don't have the tools and we're a poor African country that just is going to have to be bailed out by some IMF, you know, fund or something. That's not what we need right now is leaders to sit down and go, what are our priorities and to reimagine a society and a, and a, and a country. Um, that works and operates in a very d- different thing. I'm thinking about Singapore, when Singapore, you know, Kim Lee had to reimagine there. We almost need our Singaporean moment. Mm. And that's a not, not, a not in, in, in a pure linear way, but I think in, in our specific way. You know, stop this, this facadical project called South African Airways. It's a facade. The fact that we have this is a joke, especially when you take a look at the priorities that we have right now as a country. So I think this is not rocket science. This is not. This is government doing what it needs to do, which is get out the way in terms of spend, you know, protect citizenry, uh, put platforms in place that incentivize us from a tax perspective and an overall legislative, legislative perspective and, and let us execute against that. If we could have that, we could have in six months to a year a new country with new ratchets, with new revenue streams, with new work that we didn't imagine before. This is not difficult. This is just, you know, let's stop the madness because what's happening at the moment right now is madness. And and uh, th- as a country, we got to wake up. And I think this—I'm hoping that this will accelerate a lot of the pressure. Uh, on government to make those right decisions and to take a look at corruption with a, a, a lot, you know, the, uh, with, a, with much harder, much more rapidly, and to take a look at these these facade state owned enterprise projects that uh, just are not sustainable. And they, it essentially, it stops us from doing everything else that we could be doing to become a world class nation.
1: John Pullman is exploring the impact of the COVID 19 pandemic on the trajectory of political and socio economic development.
0: Miriam, I want to engage with you on the, the, the very notion of jobs itself as a route out of poverty and I know that may sound nonsensical but one of the things that we've been faced with in South Africa and probably it's a global problem is people have work but they do simply do not earn enough they're both money poor and so time poor that they can't fundamentally change their lives and I'm wondering in the post-corona period whether we might see a revaluing of some jobs at least which have been called essential services or are we simply going to say, well, thanks, uh, you got us through a difficult time. Let's go back to a situation where cashiers don't earn much.
1: Well, cashiers aren't earning more now either. So if I can just say, um, I would absolutely agree that around the world, uh, where most people work, which are in what are called low-value services, in other words, low-paid, domestically-orientated services, ranging from the nurses to uh, to the cashiers, to uh, tellers, to whatever um, you know, uh, service work, uh, restaurant workers, uh, they tend to be invisible. They are, um, you know, ignored and low paid, and and that is uh, and and is the value of what they do different to uh, many high paid people in in uh, say the finance sector? Probably not. But it's the nature of that work. And um, you know who writes about this well, if people want to read, is a, a, a South African journalist who lives in the UK, his name is David Cohen. And he went around the States in a, in a book called Chasing the Red, White and Blue. And he speaks to the, the, the dream, the American dream and where that is. But he speaks to that, that this issue of the invisible service worker. Yes. And, and, and that is actually what most people in the world do. So I've done a lot of research over the years, for the past like 15 years, about this phenomena that most people work in services, but as economists, we ignore it because we say, well, you know, it's not worth much. Um, but actually that's where most people are. And actually it's increasingly traded. And in fact, these days it tends to lead, uh, w- you know, uh, demand. Uh, very rarely is a manufacturing nation the one who sells the actual product and earns the bulk of the value. It's who owns the brand, who owns the IP, uh, who is getting the construction uh, project. Uh, that's who owns it. And, and they determine uh, where the manufactured goods Come from. So, so, so the
0: circumstances of those kinds of workers are unlikely to change despite the fact well, that on an emotional level they have been revalued during corona but basically business will remain business and uh, people who drive trucks and move goods around the country will continue to be paid pretty much what they always were paid.
1: Well, I don't know that they were revalued through this period, is the first thing, and I think that this kind of problem. Well, there's
0: has been, been an well emo- There's been an emotional revaluing. So the question I'm asking you is: Do you emotional. think that? Do you think that would be matched by some kind of economic revaluing so, of what they do?
1: Yeah. So now this problem called working poverty is also something that I've been doing work on for many years, and I actually got the idea again from an American economist, uh, uh, James Galbraith and uh who wrote about this in the states which we do see uh and what it means is you work for your entire life you may have had a job your entire life even a permanent job uh, and you can't make ends meet and you hardly have a pension when you when you retire that is typical for most workers around the world now so many developing countries now including south africa brazil india Uh, have much stronger social protection systems. And it is the ethos of the National Development Plan, which says uh, a good number percentage of people will never be able to make a plan on their own. And that is a global phenomenon, and it's becoming even more so. So the state needs to step in and create a floor, which says, let's get the cost of living down. And actually digital services should be part of that. Getting the state into the cloud Mm. would be a fantastic service in a country if you see what I mean, that you get services online, like Rwanda with 17% internet penetration has, service, has government services online because they, you can use a 2G phone on those services. So they fought out of the box and they got services online, even though they only have 17% internet penetration. It's astounding.
0: I mean, one of the things that makes work bearable in some jobs that really are repetitive and tedious Stafford is the social part. And I'm just wondering if we need to factor that into the way in which we construct uh, our vision of, of the future of work post Corona, that there would be a, a, a potentially a huge mental and social cost. If people find themselves working as remotely as many are forced to do now, I wondered what your thoughts on that were.
2: Yeah, yeah, I almost want to blend what we some of the responses before with with this one i i you know, I, I think we need to remap and, and reframe um our view of the world i, I you know i, I the view of economics and and how it works i think that before corona this was a thing where a lot of people were looking at uh, universal basic income a lot of people were speaking about taxing the rich um you know taking a look at the structures of businesses etc i think we're now on an accelerated path to kind of really really think about how the world works and i, I love that i don't know where i read it but it said you know we we believe in the divine right of capital today, just like we'd believed in the divine right of kings before. You know, I'd, I'd love when George Washington was was fighting King George, you know, King George said something about George Washington. He said, if George Washington truly does go back to his farm after his presidential term, he'll be the greatest man that's ever lived, you know, because he just couldn't see a world outside of monarchy. He just couldn't reframe the world because the map that he was looking at the world of was just so so different and i think that we need a remapping we need a reframing of what work means and what work will be moving forward and and how economics will work and and how organizations uh, will need to take care of, of of human beings and and i think that, that you know we are seeing some of that occurring already you know where people are looking at and when government is stepping in and doing things like furlough, um, you know, uh, and we, we do have some social projects associated. But I do think we need a whole new rethink because the way work is going to be done moving forward is, is tremendously different from the way it's being done right now. And I think the factors of this new way of work where people are working from home, where, you know, work-life balance has been completely thrown out. You know, people are working higher, more. But I'm speaking to CEOs and their, product, their productivity levels have gone up not down because people are able to do so much more because they're not sitting in a commute they're not distracted by you know the the the, the cooler chats that happen yes. when they're at the office and people are just giving it and giving it and I don't know how sustainable that is and I think HR out there and the folks that are in human resources have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders right now and a lot of weight to take a look at work life balance mental health Um, And and how this looks in future on how do you incentivize people? How do you manage them and how do you build roles and responsibilities? Because the key challenge here in this reorganization for the HR executives out there is how do we keep our staff happy and productive and well? And then how do we retain high skills and how do we attract great skills? Um, Those are challenges that that are being had right now in those HR executive suites, because again, this has reframed everything for them because You know, how do you build a job spec relative to this new way? It's a big
0: challenge right now. Miriam Altman, how is this going to affect women in the workplace? Because on the one hand, and and maybe I'm thinking very much of a particular uh, class of South African women workers, on the one hand, the fact that they're at home could be a substantial burden because of the the tendency for them to have to look after the children more in the way gender relations are defined and so on on the other hand the possibility to work from home may mean that women don't have uh, as many uh, lost opportunities because they've gone off to have children on balance women how are they going to come out of this thing
1: Yeah, you were reading my mind, John. (laughs) Even if you hadn't asked me, I would have raised this issue. Uh, You know, the reality is that this is hard on women. Um, Most women, including professional women, you know, work a double day. So when they're at home, you know, it's great for male CEOs, uh, and particularly when you don't have help it's great for male CEOs because everything's being attended to and that you know there may be a few families that aren't like that but that is generally how it is uh for women you know you're cleaning you're taking care of the kids the kids you know the kids don't have boundaries so if you don't have a home office even if you have a home office basically your kids are on top of you the entire day uh your husband has expectation the family has expectations and it's very very hard uh, to be productive in that kind of context, also you're talking about these mental health issues, and uh, you know people are social mostly, and you know that the work environment is very, very important for that social context to get out of the home, frankly and uh, and and as a way of of grouping work, of coordinating work. you know Zoom's okay, but I think a lot of people are feeling and a lot of people talk about it that it's okay. But it's not human. It's not real human interaction. You have no sense of body language, of connection, of side discussions. You know, those cooler discussions can seem very low productivity. But yes. it's also just about human interaction and the generation of ideas and time off work and connecting so that you've got relationship like relationships with your coworkers. You know what's going on in their lives, etc. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I don't know that this is a real human impulse. You know, Zoom calls. It's... it's yes. For me, I, a lot of my work's in Pretoria, so so it, and I live in Johannesburg, so it's it's been awesome, <laughs> not getting on that highway. <laughs> you, know, but, we're, you know,
2: we we we're actually seeing this at WeWork, and a lot of uh, businesses are approaching us right now. So, eighty um, uh, percent of my day, um, in my capacity as GM at WeWork, is engaging with senior executives in businesses that are asking, you know, for advice and for guidance around this because you, the the working mm-hmm. from home fatigue has definitely set in and the consequences of working from home have definitely been experienced right now. And, but we do find that, you know, one in four people want to go back to the office though. So the question is what do they do? And I do think that middle of the road, that option for them to go somewhere where productivity can happen in a socially distanced, you know, viral virus aware uh, location is so important. So we've got lots of businesses saying we are not going to ever send this portion of our folks back to head office so can we get them WeWork cards? And they can walk into any WeWork building in South Africa and tap in and just work. And they can just connect and be productive and, and meet in a socially distanced way and see other people. Yes. And uh, it's driven not just by, you know, um, it's predominantly driven by mental health and mental wellness. And, and some of the situations that they're dealing with where predominantly, I was speaking to an executive the other day, where um, they're experiencing way too many incidents of domestic violence. Um, and they want to get the females in their teams out of the homes. And they want to put them into WeWorks right away so they're not exposed to those environments for that extended period of time. And that—that's—it's it, to hear some of the stories, it's quite horrific. So as much as this is a great story for productivity and, and business sustainability and working in a different way, which we all glorify, um, there's another side to this coin, which is quite horrific. And I'm yeah. actually hearing some of that and experiencing some of that. And it's very sad to hear that.
0: Same question for both of you to conclude. Um, Miriam Altman, you first. Small business is often cited as the potential driving force for creating jobs in South Africa. Small business will have taken, uh, compared to larger enterprises, an absolute hammering uh, from Corona and its consequences like the lockdown. Do we need to revise that strategy or do we need to have a strategy that brings small business back to the start line and lets them pick up on what they were doing before?
1: You see, by definition, small firms create more jobs. uh, And that's why they have to be a focus. It also creates competition. If there's more if we had more online sales as an example we would be stimulating small business so stopping online sales at one stage was was the wrong direction yep. Um, So these are the kinds of things where when you talk about a brave new world, if we could have an Alibaba type of solution, you have a lot more competition and entry and less less barriers in terms of channel to market. So just to say in terms of future orientation. But for the moment, what I would have advocated, and certainly uh, that's the work I've been doing, is the state really has to step in with much more support to firms. The reality is by fiat, they were told to shut down. So, you know, so the government really needs to step in more forcefully to, to get companies back across the line um, and, and, and moving. It, it can't just be this light touch uh, um, kind of uh, behavior. We've got to be realistic about this.
0: Many thanks to my two guests joining me on today's episode of Beyond Corona. Thank you to Dr. Miriam Altman joining us from the University of Johannesburg and to Stafford Macy who joined us from WeWork. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.